Let's take our Bibles and go to Ezra chapter number 5, please. Ezra uh, chapter number 5. And uh, we, of course, are working our way through uh, the first few chapters here of this book with the time that we have available. We just have another Wednesday after this one in which we'll uh, be together before we split off into the various classes. Uh, we began a, a message last Wednesday night that we've entitled Resume the Work. And uh, if you look at Ezra chapter number 4 and verse number 24, you will find uh, that the work on the temple uh, had come to a, to a halt, that, uh, that things, that the progress that was being made, uh, it ends in, in chapter 4 and verse number 24. The Bible says there, then ceased the work of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem. So it ceased under the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now that may not mean a whole lot to you, but if you'll understand the timeline and who is serving as king at different points in times, you'll discover that this ceasing of the work on the house of God lasted more than 10 years. More than 10 years in which the, uh, the construction site that was the Temple Mount uh, really lay dormant, in which nothing was happening. There were, there were no sounds of hammers, and there was no sounds of saws that were cutting wood, and of, you know, of, of, uh, of different things that were happening there <clears throat> that would be synonymous with a construction site or a, a work project. But then we come to chapter number 5. And we see in verse number one, then the prophets, Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo, prophesied unto the Jews that were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel, <clears throat> even unto them. And so we discovered last week, we talked about, we talked about how does God resume a work in hearts and lives in which, you know, really not a whole lot has been happening. What does God use? What are the things that he does in order to get us going again? It may be, it may be church-wide, and in this case, it was community-wide. It was a city, a, a group of people that had returned from, from Babylon who, uh, who, were, who were given this, uh, this, this task that was in front of them to begin to rebuild the temple. And uh, how does God get them going again? How does that happen? Have you ever had a time in your life in which maybe you slipped uh, away just a little bit from, from what you know you should be doing, what you know the Bible uh, teaches you to be doing? Maybe it's in the realm of soul winning, or it could be in the realm of giving. It, it, it could be in the realm of, of uh, holy living, uh, in which, you know, at one time you were, you know, denying your flesh, and you were disciplining yourself through the power of the Holy Spirit, and then, uh, and, and then maybe a, a moment of weakness in which you, you yielded back that ground, and, and you went right back to doing what you were doing before, and, and and then God, God comes along and he gently sometimes, and then sometimes not so gently, stirs us up again and we resume the work that, that we were one time doing, uh, doing before. Well, that, that really is what, what happens here. And we talked about, well, how does, how does that happen? And we discovered that there is a familiar pattern, really, that is seen in our text. And the familiar pattern begins, begins with powerful preaching. That's really what we find in chapter 5 and verse number 1. We have two men specifically. Their names are Haggai and Zechariah. And both of these men are used by the Lord to lift up their voice and to cry aloud and to speak boldly uh, the truth that comes from the very mouth of God. And of course, we, uh, we delved into Haggai's message last week, Haggai 
chapter number one. We'll, we'll briefly visit that once again tonight. But we discovered this idea of powerful preaching. God uses that often to help us to resume maybe ground that we had lost or to resume serving the Lord once again. But notice there's a second element to this particular pattern. Not only do we discover in, in, in Ezra chapter five, powerful preaching, but also we discover that God also uses godly leadership. Godly leadership. Look in verse number two, if you would, of chapter number five. So the powerful preachings found in verse number one. And then verse number two, the Bible says, Then rose up Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, and began to build the house of God, which is at Jerusalem. And with them were the prophets of God, helping them. And so we discover here that, uh, th- that the work resumes when the godly leaders stand up, they rise up, and they, uh, they head back to the Temple Mount after a, a decade delay, uh, after a, a decade in which there is no progress being made, uh, when the godly leaders hear the preaching of the Word of God from Haggai and from Zechariah, the Bible says that they immediately rose up And they went back to where they were supposed to be and they began to do the work that God had called them to do all of those years ago. And so we discover this concept of godly leadership. Uh, It was Dr. Lee Robertson uh, who once used to say uh, that everything rises and falls on leadership. And that leadership is really important and it is really significant. And really throughout history we discover that God has has really used leaders to lead people. Uh, we understand of course that uh, that the nation of Israel was led by God, but we also understand that God used men, didn't he? Throughout the nation of Israel's history. He used men like Moses and men like Joshua. And then, of course, we enter into the period of the judges, and then uh, we enter into the period of the prophets, and we learn of a man by the name of Samuel. And, and shortly, shortly after Samuel's time of leadership, we discover a king, and uh, his name is Saul, and then David, and Solomon, and, and, uh, and, and Rehoboam, and the list goes on and on in which God uses, God uses leaders to lead people. And of course, we come into the New Testament and we find that, of course, there's the Lord Jesus Christ, but the forerunner to the Lord Jesus Christ, a man by the name of John. What did God do? God used John to prepare the nation of Israel for Christ's arrival. God uses men. Of course, we find that Jesus chooses 12 apostles. One of them, of course, would defect. He would betray the Lord Jesus Christ for 30 pieces of silver, but the 11 would carry on, and, and, uh, and we discover that they'd be instrumental in the early days of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ moving forward. And, and we find that the Apostle Paul is a leader, and we find that, that one of the things that Paul would do in, in the pattern of his ministry was that he would go to places in which he'd establish a church, and you know what he would do? He would set up leaders in those churches. Paul understood, you know, I can't be more than one place at a time, and, and so since I, I can't live in Ephesus, God hasn't called me to live there, Ephesus needs a leader, and so Timothy went to Ephesus. And he says, I can't live on the Isle of Crete, but, but somebody's got to be there to minister to these churches, and so what does he do? He leaves Titus in a place called Crete. And, uh, and, and again, the list goes on and on of, of, of him ordaining elders in every city and, and establishing leadership so that the church could go forward. So we understand, we understand that leadership is extremely important and significant in the work of God. And I've often found that when I, 
uh, when I've kind of drifted a little bit in my spiritual walk or in my spiritual journey, more often than not, God uses powerful preaching and he also uses godly leadership many times to get me back on track. I just find that that's a familiar pattern. It's how God works. God's worked that way for many, many years. And what do we discover about these godly leaders here in our text? Well, number one, we discover that godly leaders are convicted themselves by the preaching of God's word. What makes, what makes a, a leader a godly leader? What makes someone uh, able to stand and to, uh, and, and to preach a message or to lead a group of people? Well, what makes them capable of that certainly is the call of God upon their life, but also it's a tender heart and a sensitive spirit towards the leading of God in their own lives. You know, as a, as a preacher of the gospel, I have to sort of balance the, uh, the responsibility that God has given to me in that as the pastor of this church, I, I primarily do most of the preaching here. And I love to do it. I enjoy it a great deal. And, uh, and, and, and yet every so often, every so often I feel like it's necessary for me, for me to invite a guest preacher in because I need to be preached to. I need to hear someone open the Bible and preach God's word to me. Um, I, uh, I'm blessed to serve as the moderator of the Ohio Independent Baptist Preachers Fellowship. We have a meeting usually about once a month. And, um, and, and one of the benefits of that meeting is going there and uh, being able to hear preaching from other preachers from the Word of God. And it stirs my heart and it stirs uh, my soul and, and, and my spirit. And, and periodically, God allows me to maybe go to a conference or go to some type of a meeting in which I, I'm there to be fed spiritually. And so understand that, that godly leaders are not the type of people in which they, don't, uh, they no longer need conviction. They no longer need preaching from God's Word. No, no, just the opposite. Now, the godly leaders who are going to lead in a godly way, they must too hear the preaching of God's word and they must be convicted by it. Now, now these leaders, they knew that, uh, that they had allowed this project uh, to decrease in priority while at the same time, them and their fellow countrymen were building their homes and their communities. Um, they, they knew, they knew as Haggai communicates them in Haggai chapter number one. I mean, it's such a pointed message because he says, you say that it's not time. You say that it's not time to rebuild the house of God. And then he says this in Haggai 1.4, is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses and this house lie waste? Boy, that's a, that's a confrontational message, isn't it? I mean, here are these, here are these leaders who, who have abandoned the, the work there on the Temple Mount for 10 years. And during that time, they, they're building their own homes and they're building their own communities. Perhaps maybe they're creating parks in the, in the neighborhood for their children to play on. And, and, and maybe they're, 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 they're developing new roads and, and uh, maybe they're building other things that will make them a safer community and a better community to live in. Maybe they're constructing, um, you know, constructing uh, schoolhouses for their children to go to school and, and uh, places of employment for them to work. And you know, maybe there's a carpenter and he's over here and he could be using his gifts and his talents to be building the temple, but instead he's using his gifts and talents to be remodeling homes and making them look nicer. And, and, uh, and Haggai's message is a confrontational one. He says, he says you say it's not time, but it, you've had enough time to build your own houses. 
You've had enough time to do the things that you want to do, and yet all this time you say that it is not time to do what God would have you to do. And, and oh my, this message was such a convicting message as Haggai points his finger at the remnant who had returned uh, because the leaders, listen, the leaders had held a, a position of influence and responsibility, and, and yet they had not used their leadership to lead the people in the direction that God would have them to go. And as a result, as a result, Haggai preaches this message, and the preaching of God's word convicted these leaders. These men realized, yes, we have failed. We have not been what we ought to have been And I'm thinking to myself that you may not consider yourself to be a leader in this church. You may not find yourself in that particular role. You say, I don't really teach a class. I don't hold a certain position or a title. But it's very likely that you hold a position of leadership in your home. I'm I'm assuming that you may hold a position of leadership maybe in the place that you work. There's something that you're responsible for. There's something that your company, your employer has given you oversight for. Some of you, perhaps, maybe you teach in a school environment, and so you have a position of leadership in a classroom. Others of you, maybe you have a position of leadership in your neighborhood. You've lived there the longest, and people look to you as, a, as someone who sort of is a figurehead of a leader in, in your community. And I'm just simply saying, listen, the goal ought to be uh, not just to be a leader, but to be a godly leader. And can I say that uh, leaders, le- leaders are first to be followers. And who are we to be following? We're to be following God and following his word, and we're to be obeying the impulses of the Holy Spirit. And can I say that the preaching of God's word, listen, God uses that to convict all of us from time to time, not just followers, but also leaders. And we find that that takes place in our text. But notice, secondly, not only do godly leaders, are they convicted by the preaching of God's word, but notice, secondly, godly leaders respond to the preaching of God's word. You know, it's one thing to be convicted. I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb here, and I'm going to say that probably in this room, all of us have been convicted about a matter in our lives through maybe preaching or maybe through some comment that was made to us or maybe just through our own personal Bible reading in which the Holy Spirit of God pricks our hearts about a, a matter in our life or the way that we're living. And yet, and yet, you know as well as I do that we have learned, we have learned how to silence that conviction. Perhaps it's in a church service and the conviction sets in and, uh, and we think to ourselves, boy, that's convicting. Yeah, my life is not right in that area. But here's what, here's, what we, here's what we say. If I can just make it through the invitation, I'll be okay. And if I can just get to the close of the service, I know, I know once I get in my car and I drive off of this property, I'll be all right. You see, conviction is a, is a great thing. It is a necessary thing in our lives, but it is not sufficient. What will you do with the conviction of the Holy Spirit when he works in your heart and in your life? In other words, it's not just enough to say, ooh, that stings, that hurts. Yeah, I'm wrong there. But how will you respond? What will you change in your life in order to be right with God? Notice the Bible says that these leaders, they rose up and they began to build the house of God, which is at Jerusalem. They, they, they looked at Haggai and they said, sir, you're right. We have done these things. We're guilty. 
We, we have been guilty of allowing the house of God to lie waste while, while rebuilding our own homes and our own community. Yes, you're right. But notice what the next step is. Then they rose up and they went back to the temple mount and they began once again to construct the temple uh, as, it was, uh, as it was to be constructed. You know the picture that I get as I read this is sort of a man of a man who has been in a position of relaxation for a little too long and he knows it. We talked a little about that last week. In which, you know, you come in on a hot day and you sort of, you know, you sort of sit down and you know that that's like the kiss of death, isn't it? Because once you've taken that posture of relaxation and rest, it is so hard. It is so hard to pick yourself up and to go back outside and to begin to do whatever it is that you're working on. It's a whole lot easier to sit in that chair and to read a book or to nap or to watch a television program or to uh, sip on a cold beverage on a hot day or maybe have a snack or something like that. A whole lot easier to do that. And really the picture here is that Zerubbabel and uh, Jeshua and, and, and the other people, they, they had come in, listen, the opposition, the adversaries had gotten them to sit down and once they had gotten them to sit down, it became nearly impossible for them to stand back up and to go about doing what it is that God had called them to do. And that's just the picture that's seen here. In other words, here's a man. He has, he has sat down to rest, and, and he's been there too long, and he knows he's been there too long, but he just doesn't have the motivation to get up and to get back to the work. He knows there's work to be done, and, and, and he, uh, he, he eventually, he has to push against his flesh because the flesh wants to stay in that position of rest. You know, you know that the flesh was warring against the spirit here. You know that the flesh was telling, uh, telling the spirit, you, you don't want to go back up to that mountain. You know how, do you know what it's going to look like once you get up there? Do you know how the weeds have grown up all over that property? Do you know that things that you had done before have fallen into a, into a state of disrepair? Do you know that you're going to have to spend weeks, perhaps, just cleaning up the job site before you can even begin to make any progress again? Do you really want to start this again? Do, do you understand that by going back to that mound, it means that you're going to have to take a break from your normal job and your normal work? And you just know, you just know that there is is a war that is going on here. And you know that because you've experienced it. You've perhaps stepped away from doing something that God would have you to do and the Holy Spirit of God begins to convict you. Hey, you need to get back to that. Oh, I can't go back to that. Boy, I, it's been so long. I, I don't even remember how to do that. I don't even remember how to do this or that. I, 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 don't, I, don't think, I think I'm too old to do that kind of work now. I mean, you can understand that some of the excuses that these men and the others would have been making as it relates to getting back to the work that God had called them to do. And you, and you must know, you must know that when God convicts and when God leads, that your flesh is always going to war and it's going to lust against your spirit. And you have to be prepared for that. And you have to understand, okay, conviction is set in here. I know what I need to do. Boy, actually putting it into practice and doing what I need to do is a different story altogether, isn't it? And we find that these men, oh boy, they, 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 they pushed back against the flesh that was saying, you know, just a little bit longer, just a little bit longer. The time has not come. Give it a little bit more time. And these men, Zerubbabel and Jeshua, they heard the preaching from the men of God. They were convicted by it, and they were determined to do something about what they had heard.
Notice thirdly, as we consider godly leaders, we see that not only are they convicted by the preaching of God's word and they're responsive to the preaching of God's word, but thirdly, notice that godly leaders do hard things. Godly leaders do hard things. I, in my mind's eyes, I was preparing earlier today, I thought to myself, what must those first few days have been like there on that Temple Mount? Several, several years ago, uh, there was a project in the community that I live in uh, that had gotten started, and then it had sat empty probably for a period of 10, 15 years at least. Uh, they, had, uh, they had poured uh, concrete for a parking garage of, on this structure, and maybe a little bit of other work that had been done, and then they ran out of money, and they couldn't really go any further. And the project just sat there year after year after year after year. And I'm telling you, that was such an eyesore in our community. I mean, every time you drove by it, it's just like, what in the world? Are they ever going to resume the work here? And eventually, eventually what ended up happening, they ended up just, just destroying the whole thing and, and, and starting all over again. They're, I don't know, they're building something there now. But I just, in my mind, I'm thinking to myself, what must have been like for these men to walk up on that Temple Mount? Perhaps maybe they hadn't been up there for 10 years. And maybe they had been, but to walk back up there and to look around and to survey uh, to survey the decay and the deterioration that is inevitable uh, here in this cursed and fallen earth, that when you leave something to just sit and to be exposed to the elements, whether it's the rain and the, the heat and the sun and, and maybe even cooler temperatures at night, when something just sits uh, ex- exposed to those things and, and there, there's no one there taking care of it, and I have to think, I have to think that when they walked up there, they thought to themselves, boy, this, this, might, be more, this might be more than what we're capable of. And they walked around, and maybe, maybe the first few days, not only was it a, a hard place to be, but maybe it was a very lonely place to be as well. I wonder if maybe, maybe it was just the two of them that went up there, and maybe they took with them some brooms, and maybe some shovels, or you know, just some, some tools, just to, you know, and as they're walking through town, where are you guys going? Well, we're going back up to the, to the temple. What are you going up there for? Well, you know, we heard a message the other day, a preacher came, and he, he really confronted us, and, and we've really been convicted by it, and we just, you know, we know it's time to get back up to that temple and begin to rebuild the, the temple, and, you know, well, let us know how it goes. <laughs> Hope it goes okay up there, and they got up there, and they began to sweep up some of the debris and maybe pull some of the weeds and and, and maybe, you know, maybe begin to, you know, pound uh, some, uh, some things down that had, you know, that had fallen and, and, and put it right into place or get rid of it so they could start all over again. And maybe, who knows, maybe, I'm just, I'm just surmising here, but maybe, maybe the, the sound of maybe some tools up on that Temple Mount began to ver- reverberate throughout that community. And those guys thought to themselves, well, they'll never, they'll never rebuild that temple with just the two of them up there. Maybe, maybe we ought to, maybe we ought to give a hand. You understand how leadership works? That, that's what's happening here. These, these men are, are, are saying, you know, listen, the, the job's got to be done. It's been, it's, been sat, it's been sitting there for far too long. We're going and we're going to do whatever God's called us to do. And, and through, their, through their presence there on that mound and through the work that they were doing, word begins to spread around the community. And others uh, decide, you know, we, we probably ought to be involved in this project as well. And it starts, listen, it starts because godly leaders do hard things. I, um, I, I want you to know that what Jesus said about, about leadership. 
Jesus, Jesus distinguished the, the leadership of, of the, the unsaved as being different from the leadership of the saved. He, he, he addresses that in Matthew chapter number 20, and I want you to hold your place here in Ezra 5, and I want you to see this. It's familiar to some of us, but it's good for us to see it. Go with me to Matthew chapter number 20, would you? Gospel of Matthew chapter number 20. And of course, this conversation comes on the, the heels of them talking, the disciples talking and speaking in sort of a, you know, a, a bold way about you know, what they're going to do for the cause of Christ and you know, how their greatness is, is going to be. And, and, uh, and, and, and there's a conversation here of a mother talking to the Lord with her two sons and asking, hey, can they have this position? And Jesus says, well, if they're, if they're going to drink of the, the cup that I, uh, that I drink of and if they're going to be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with, well, then they can have that position in my kingdom. And when the other ten heard that the, the mother of the two had asked Jesus about this, they got riled up. And, and Jesus says, let's have a little talk here about what real spiritual leadership is. And look what he says in Matthew 20. In verse number 25, he says, he says this, Ye know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and they that are great exercise authority upon them. Now you have to know that when Jesus uses this term Gentiles here, he's not, he's not just talking about uh, a, a group of people as far as you know, by birth or by nativity. He is, I believe he's making a, a deeper point here. I think he's talking about a, a group of people in a spiritual sense. I think he's saying, he's saying you know the, the unsaved world? You know the people that are lost, that don't know me? Here's how they lead. They lead by exercising dominion over other people. In other words, they, uh, they lead by, by, by pushing those below them uh, down as far as they possibly can to, to ensure that those people never rise up. Uh, they, they lead by you know, cracking the whip and, and, and by making other people do what they themselves are not willing to do. He said that's how the lost world leads. And that is how the lost world leads. Leadership is all about what can I get out of it. We've seen, oh, how much corruption have we seen in our world as it relates to political corruption. You know, the idea of a politician is supposed to be to get into office and to try to make life better for the people. But you know as well as I do that more often than not, politicians get in office and they forget all about the people. <laughs> they, they, they do everything in their power to make life better for themselves. How can, I, how can I use my position to enrich myself and enrich my family? And, and, and maybe if there's some leftovers for my constituents, well, that'll be okay as well. But, but you know as well as I do that more often than not, it is, a, it is a leadership that seeks to enhance itself. And Jesus says that's how the unsaved world lives. That's how they act. But notice he goes on to say in verse number 26, but it shall not be so among you. How do we know that this is a spiritual conversation? That he's not just talking about Gentiles by birth, but he's talking about Gentiles you know, in a spiritual sense, unsaved, lost people. Because he looks at them, he says, it shall not be so among you. You're my followers. You, you are those who have chosen to follow me and to serve me. And he says, it, it's not gonna be that way among you. Notice, how is it gonna be among them? He says, but whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Even so, even as I should say, the son of man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life 
a ransom for many. You know what Jesus is saying? He's saying godly leaders, they do hard things. This is, the, this, is, this is what God uses, listen, to get his work going again. He uses godly leadership. He uses powerful preaching. He uses those who will do hard things. But notice, fourthly, God also uses godly leaders who work with other godly leaders. Look at the end of, going back to chapter five of Ezra, and look at the end of verse number two, would you? And notice what is stated here. Ezra 5 and verse number 2. It says this, And they began to build the house of God which is at Jerusalem, and with them, with them, with who? With the leaders, Jeshua, and with Zerubbabel, with them were the prophets of God helping them. Oh my, godly leaders work with other godly leaders. Uh, We work together. You know, the spiritual leaders preach the message. The political leaders heard and responded to the message, and together they cooperated with one another to resume the work. And I have to tell you that sometimes I feel like we struggle to replicate this in our, in our churches and among Christians today. Uh, what I mean by that is, you know, we, 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 we should be helping one another. We should be rejoicing in one another uh, as, as others are, uh, are advancing the cause of Christ. Boy, they're doing the work. We ought to, we ought to celebrate that. We ought, to, we ought to rejoice when a, a church across town has a big day and sees a bunch of people saved and, and is growing and maybe is in a building program. Boy, we ought to celebrate that. But sometimes we almost look at it like, you know, well, that should be us. And, and that, well, if we want it to be us, then maybe we ought to start getting back to doing what God's called us to do. The bottom, the bottom line is, is that godly leaders, listen, they work together with other godly leaders to do the work that God has called us to do. You know, I may not agree with every little thing another pastor, another church does, but listen, if that pastor and that church are sincerely trying to build a house for God, then I should be for them. And I should celebrate what it is that they're trying to accomplish and how uh, God is using them and they're part of the world. And so this is a, just a little bit of a look at, at godly leadership and how God uses it. But notice, notice there's, a, there's a third thing that, that arises in this familiar pattern And that is this, we not only have powerful preaching and we have godly leadership, but we see once again in verse number three, all the way through the end of the chapter, we see consistent opposition. Consistent opposition. You know, the Jews had had told their adversaries that Cyrus had been behind all of this. And the adversaries, they sort of doubted that that would be the case. I mean, you're telling me a pagan king from another part of the world is behind all of this? called for this project, has, has, has told you to do this, and has even provided some funding for you to do this, I, I just can't believe that. And it does seem pretty far-fetched, doesn't it? Seems pretty crazy, sort of out there, that a pagan king would, would call for the city of Jerusalem to be inhabited again and for it to be rebuilt and for the temple to, to be rebuilt as well. And yet, and yet that is exactly what happened. And we see the, uh, some, some things about this opposition. Number one, we see the timing of the opposition. Would you look in verse number three? So verse number two, they rise up and they begin once again to build the house of God. But look what happens in verse number three. At the same time came to them Tatnai, governor on this side of the river, and Shethar Bosnai and their companions, and said thus unto them, who hath commanded you to build this house and to make up this wall? I, I, if you're in the habit of marking Bible, I would just mark that phrase, at the same time. Here's what you need to understand. You need to understand that as soon as the project resumed, as soon as the work started again, so the opposition started again as well. 
That's just how it works. At the same time, there's no delay here. When, when they heard, wait, wait a minute, what's that sound we hear? Somebody's got a broom up on the Temple Mount? Somebody picking up trash on the Temple Mount? Somebody's swinging a hammer on the Temple Mount? Somebody's carving some more wood up there? At the same time, they marched back up to that Temple Mount and they said, who gave you authority to start this project again? Whose idea is this? Who said you could do this sort of thing? I mean, the timing is immediate. For 10 years, the job site was vacant and the opposition left the people of God alone. But the very moment that the work resumed, the opposition was back. The adversary was back. And you must know, you must know that he hasn't changed course. You're sitting on the sidelines and you're not doing a whole lot for God and you know, you're just, you know, just barely getting by. You're here, but you're not really here. The opposition is sort of like, you know, leave him alone. I'm going to go mess with somebody who's causing me more trouble. But the very minute, the very minute you decide, you know what, we're going we're gonna to go forward for God. As a family, we're going we're gonna to march forward, and we're going to begin to get serious about living the Christian life again, and we're going to begin to read God's word more faithfully, and we're going to begin to serve God more faithfully, and we're going to begin uh, to pray more consistently. At that moment, you can be sure, you can be sure that the opposition is going to rise up. Notice, secondly, not only the timing of the opposition, but we discover the, t- the intimidation of the opposition. Look in verse number four. Then said we unto them after this manner, what are the names of the men that make this building? Look at verse number 10. This is the letter that they wrote to King Darius. And here's what they write in the letter. We asked their names also to certify thee that we might write the names of the men that were the chief of them. One of the tactics that the opposition used was to collect the names of those who were working on this project. It's sort of like a tattletale type of a thing. Who's, who's all involved in this? Okay, Fred's involved in this, and Henry's involved in this, and Harry's involved in this. Get their names down, because we're going to put their names on this letter to King Darius, and if, and if they're not supposed to be doing this, well, then Fred and Henry and Harry, they're all going to be in trouble. That's the intimidation that they used. And we just want you to know, the king's going to know that you're working on this project, and if he's not okay with it, you're going to be in trouble. Are you sure? Are you sure you want to stay up here? Are you sure you want to be identified with what's going on here? Oh, they intended to report the names of those who were defying the king's shutdown order from a decade prior. They assumed that this threat would intimidate the workers, but they were wrong. Can I just tell you, the opposition may not always use the same tactic, but they will try to intimidate those who are doing a work for God. Always, always. Their intimidation may may be to use some law or decree that has been passed. They may try to intimidate using the vastness of the project or uh, what we've been called to do or the limited resources that are available to us. But you can be sure that the opposition is going to come and he's going to whisper in your ear, are you sure you're not cut out for this? This is too much for you. Intimidation is a tactic that the opposition often uses. But I want you to notice, in conclusion tonight, the acknowledgement of the opposition. The opposition acknowledged something that is very, very key. Notice it in verse number eight. They're writing this letter to the king to report on what's happening on the Temple Mount. Look what they say in verse number eight. Be it known unto the king that we went into the province of Judea to the house of the great God, which is builded with great stones, and timber is laid in the walls, and this work goeth fast on and prospereth prospereth in their hands. You know why the opposition was so urgent? 
in getting this letter sent to Darius because they saw not only was the work resumed, but it was going faster and prospering more than they could have ever dreamed. And that was a threat to them. I just, I just wonder if maybe there's something supernatural that was going on here. God was doing something unusual here in that the building was being constructed in a, in a, in a way that it probably was going a little faster than it should have considering, you know, considering the timing and the, and, and the day and age in which they were living. Oh boy, they were, uh, they, were, they, were, they were thrown by this. And can I say that this is a credit? It is a compliment to the Jews and to the spirit that enabled them to do more than what they should have been able to accomplish in such a limited amount of time. And can I say this as, as we conclude tonight? When we walk with God and when we do what God's called us to do, listen, you can be sure that he will enable us to do things beyond what we're capable of doing. And, and, and to the point where, listen, listen, the opposition will acknowledge it and will see it and will know it. Can I say that's wonderful? But I want you also to know it comes with a threat. It comes with a threat of consistent opposition. Listen, when God works, the devil works as well. And we must know that, and we must be certain of that. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed for just a moment tonight. And as we conclude our time together, we thought for just a moment last week about this idea of what is it that perhaps maybe you once did, what you were once involved in, the work of God that you were once faithful to. Perhaps maybe it's been a while since you did that. Maybe it's handing out tracts consistently. Maybe it's praying for your family members or your neighbors to be saved. Maybe it's in the realm of giving, in the realm of serving, whatever the case might be. Can I say that God wants to resume that work in your life? Truly, he does. And he'll use, he'll use different things. Sometimes he'll use powerful preaching. Sometimes he'll use godly leadership. He might, listen, he might even use opposition to get you going again. Listen, let's not miss. Listen, life is too short. Life is too short to miss doing what God has called us to do and serving in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. And so if, if the Holy Spirit of God can identify an area in your life that needs to be rebuilt, the work needs to be resumed, may we, may we not just be convicted about it, but may we respond. May we get up from our position of leisure and our position of rest, and may we be willing, may we be willing to take the hard and the lonely and the difficult steps that are necessary to get us back to where we need to be. Would you